Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Good morning, everyone, from boiling hot Westchester, and we're hoping that the temperature goes down, but this is going to be so phenomenal. We have New York Times author John Gilstrap, and he's going to tell us about Grimson Phoenix. And if you haven't read the book, what is wrong with you? What is taking you so long? So good morning and welcome to MJ Network, MJ in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce. That's how I named it. So, What a lovely way to name a channel, and, um, and thank you. Good morning. Yeah, I did. She, she was unique. <laughs> so... I you know I I read like thousands of books every year seriously, and this was original. How did you decide to make the emergency code Crimson Phoenix? And in the real world, do do they really have emergency codes to tell people that they have to get the president into a bunker? Um, yes, I mean those exist in in the real world, and the story itself, Crimson Phoenix, as a as a code word, um, you know they mm-hmm. tend to be. I don't know how those particular code words are, are generated, but they tend to be sort of random words that are put together. And Crimson Phoenix sounded kind of cool. Actually, that's where the, that particular phrase came from. Um, but the idea for the story actually came the, the um, in the story. The uh, there's a, a threat of a nuclear war, and Congress mm. is evacuated to the relocation center in um, in, in somewhere in West Virginia. And that used to be a real place. They, there still is a real place, but um, mm. right now there's uh, in um, the Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Um, it's, a, it's this gorgeous, huge uh, resort that Eisenhower commissioned that a, um, a bunker be built there, and that was in fact the government relocation center. And for many years, and it was stocked much as the relocation center, the, the annex, as I call it in the book, is stocked. And, uh, and then 1994, I think, in, in the in the early mid 90s, uh, the Washington mm. Post broke the story um, that this place existed. So with the secret gone, they they opened it up so you can tour it. And um, my wife and I were staying at the Greenbrier. I took the tour, and I got the idea for the book. That is, that is brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. You know that that is, I've done so many panel shows, and I've asked you know to many of the authors, where did you get your ideas for the um, novels? And it, that's amazing. The the craziest ideas are where they come from. So, the first family and second family, they're very precious. So if there's a code, they have to be taken somewhere, right? So Correct. why why they got taken wherever they got taken. And then we meet, oh, I love this character. I, I adore Victoria. I think she's great. Oh, my God, she's so good. Why was she treated differently than others? And what was her real position? And tell us about Major McCree. She stood up to him. Good for her. 
Well, Victoria Emerson is the uh, representative, House of Representatives, U.S. Representative for uh, the state of West Virginia. She lives in, uh, in the book, she lived in Arlington, Virginia, which is just outside D.C. And when the Crimson Phoenix Code went active, which is evacuate government to relocation centers, um, mm. the actual rule, just so you know, I don't know what the rule is now, but back then, back in the, um, until the early 90s when the, the story was mm. broken, um, members of Congress and one staff member were allowed to go. Families were not. And I continued wow. that into the fictional annex. And uh, Victoria took her kids. She's a single mom, and her husband was killed uh, in, in battle, and she just refused to go in without her family. And Major McRae is her, the head of her mm. security detail, two-person security detail, and his orders are to get her to the annex, and he's going to do that. She doesn't have to want to go, but he is going to get her there. And um, so that's, that's kind of where it, where it launches. So she, she says no when they finally get to the annex. She, they can't make her go in. They can't carry her in. So she and her kids uh, decide to take their chances in, in, in the wilds, and Major McRae and First Sergeant Copley, her security detail, are kind of stuck with her, and that's, that's, where, the, that's where the story goes. Yeah, because when she gets to the safe house, she told her sons can't go in there. So she does something that nobody in their right mind would do. And she does it anyway, because she decides to take a chance on her own, which is probably something I would do also. No, seriously. I mean, that, that's that's amazing. So where did she expect? Where did this? Where did they expect her to leave her sons? I mean, nobody's going to leave children, whether they're older or whatever, un, unsafe, and not, if their parent, mother is in danger. So where did they expect her to leave her sons? Well, they that that wasn't their yeah, problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's um, these these codes exist. You know, not everybody gets to to mm-hmm. go into go into the bunker. This is an issue when um, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when mm-hmm. things looked like things were getting really really bad. Um, Kenneth O'Donnell was JFK's uh, personal assistant. I'm not sure what his actual title was, special assistant to the president, I guess. And when it looked like it was going to go hot, he had to break the news to his family that he. Um, Ken O'Donnell had had a ticket to the bunker, and his family did not. Just the way of things. Kind of scary. It's more scary because some of this sort of relates back to something that I just wrote in my new book, and I loved it. That's the best part of all. I'll say that after. So communications are gone. Cars don't work. Transportation, no lights. Millions of people Explain what happened between Israel, Iran, and Russia that created this mess. Well, in the the premise of the book, and it's really not, yeah. the book is not so much about this as sort of the triggering event, but <clears throat> we, the United States, is aware that Israel is planning a preemptive strike against Iran, who has developed mm. a nuclear weapon. And because you know, Israel and the United States are so closely tied, uh, we know the government knows that we're going to be blamed, and the plan is that the world will understand that um, this is a, a limited strike, and that Israel has a, has a right to protect themselves, and mm. and it will stay small. 
But then the news media leaks the, that the story is coming, and Iran launches first, surprises everybody, and then, you know, it's the old mutually assured destruction. Uh, once, once missiles are launched, and this is true too, once missiles are launched, they, they, they don't, they can't be destroyed. There's no self-destruct mechanism. Mm-hmm. Once they're launched, they're going to they're going to go where they're targeted to go. And assuming that the U.S. missile bases, everybody knows where they are. Um, are targeted, then we have to empty those silos before they get hit. So then we launch too, and it's kind of the war lasts like eight hours, and it's it's all over. Well, in this world, you but never Victoria, know what's going to happen. Yeah, Victoria and Victoria, her family, you know, while hundreds of hundreds of millions, maybe billions, we, I, nobody knows within the story uh, of, of people who are killed. You know, hundreds of millions of people yeah. aren't killed, and they have to learn to survive without any of the um, modern conveniences. Well, that's the fun part about this story. This creates a world that's practically gone without people. And my new book's coming out November, June 26th. It's called Population Zero, The World Without People. That's all I'll say about that. Siri, it is. So what happens when we meet the people that are actually in the bunker? We meet the Speaker of the House and the Senate, and they're not treated very well by Solara, who's running the place, and could care less about who they are. And how does this person get away with mistreating the people that are supposed to be saving us or saving the people that are still alive? Well, again, this harkens back to reality. Um, Solara yeah. is an entirely fictional company. I mean, that's, that's oh, sort whoa. Of, there, there was a – but at the real bunker, the bunker was – in, in in the Greenbrier, and I presume wherever it is now, um, the 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 company, the consulting company that that runs the bunker, is in charge of the bunker. The mm. the members of Congress, the House and the Senate, who come there, they're free to do whatever they're going to do to run the country, but they do not run the bunker. That is, and there are in fact jail cells, and there are in fact you know, weapons for the um, for the the contractor to use mm. because the assumption is you know it's it's going to be really really stressful times and um their their job solara in this case the the um consulting firm that runs the bunker all they care about is making sure that the rules are followed and that the bunker works they don't do policy they don't do mm. politics all they do is to make sure that that the place runs properly and they have there there is no appellate authority to them they're they're the law so i don't know that they're mean so much as or abusive so much as they are um hardcore you know this is these are the rules you've got to meet if you're not if you're not a member of congress or if you're not the staff member attached to a member of congress you don't belong there and uh it kind of plays out in a in an awful way within the book but um but yeah it's a I was. It was. It, it's interesting, you know, to go. What was really interesting mm-hmm. about writing this book, essentially about Armageddon, is I wrote it last year. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of in the middle of a different Armageddon at the time. It was kind of. It was kind of unsettling. This whole world is unsettling. Let me tell you. I haven't been. I haven't seen my family in two years since it started. It's not been oh, anywhere. That's terrible. It is. They're horrible because some of my family ha- had COVID. My brother's family and all of my nieces and nephews in Florida all had it. And they're not getting vaccinated. They don't want to. I, on the other hand, 
suffered the torture of the vaccine, but I did. Because it's definitely better than finding out what happens when you get it, when you don't get it. So it's, it's scary. This world is unsettling. Now, she arrives at the safe house, and she resigns because she doesn't want to remain there without her sons. So she decides to leave. And how does that work for her? How does Victoria work in a world that you create, live in a world where she created? Because she's no longer has, she has the protection of the guys, but she decided to escape and leave. That, that was really, I mean, I, that, I don't blame her. Well, it's, uh, um, it, it's, it was not a difficult decision for her because, you know, the kids, mm. family always comes first. And, um, and, and that's, that's the decision she made. And it helps that Victoria has always been, uh, and her husband, while, you know, before he was killed in, in battle, um, mm. she was something of a prepper. So she, under, she and her kids have survival skills and they know how to hunt and they know how to put up mm. meat and they know how to, um, because they have sort of, not planned for this, but you know, there's there's a whole community of of preppers that are out there, and they they tend to be sort of dismissed by a lot of media sources as, mm. as crazy, and some of them are, but some of them are just you know really prepared. And um, when and in the case of COVID, uh, I know a number of people who live in the country and, and sort of follow that ethos, and um, they didn't they didn't need to go to the grocery store, right? They had plenty of meat, and mm-hmm. um, so. Uh, but that's how that, that's the leg up that Victoria has, and and she's done within the book. She's done with leadership. She wants she's this is survival mode now. You know, once once the bombs come mm-hmm. and she knows that that it's as awful as it's going to get. All she wants to do is protect herself and her family and and survive. And she's she's just one of those natural leaders who people naturally follow. And she can't shed the mantle of leadership as much as she wants to. I don't blame her for what she did. And I think maybe kids, you know, it's funny, I will take a ride up and down where we where we live, and I'm seeing more and more um, places opening up for uh, survival skills or martial arts and stuff like that. They are. More kids are taking, you know, taking lessons on how to defend themselves than I've ever seen before. It's really amazing. So maybe there's something to this whole thing. So... How and why do they decide to join refuse in ortho? And but who do they meet on the way that proves all five of them are more of a match for the Krebs? I was so impressed. <laughs> well, I was you like, know, people... yeah, you can do this. I don't know if I would do that, but yeah, okay. Well, when you know, law and order is is sort of a an artificial construct. We all agree um, that that we're going to drive certain speeds on the road and we agree that stealing is bad and we agree certainly that murder is bad and we, you know, all of these things because we have that, um, the comfort we have a, we have an infrastructure and a society that allows us to do that. When you take all of that away, um, Mm. people become feral very, very quickly. I mean, just look at, look at people hoarding toilet paper during the COVID times or hoarding, hoarding gasoline, you know, a couple of weeks ago when the, uh-huh. uh, the, the pipeline shut down. So people, they, they really, society takes a second, uh, second place to individual survival 
when things go go wrong. And as Victoria and her family and her security detail are walking, uh, the electromagnetic pulse has destroyed all modern electronics. So as they're walking somewhere, they don't know where, just not to a major city because they've all been destroyed, um, they run into the Grubbs gang. And they are sort of feral humans who are um, looking to survive, and it, it leads to a conflict with... Um, with Victoria and and her her detail that I think is very tense and uh, and it plays out you know throughout the book a little bit later uh, but yeah it, it's everybody it's sort of like if you go out into the wild I don't know if you if you've done hunting or anything like that but if if you're hunting something if one is hunting something big you have to understand that they're hunting you too um, yeah. once you're in that once you're in the we like our place at the top of the food chain. But once once everybody is either hunting or hunted, uh, it, it's everybody is a potential enemy, and they're potential friends too. But they got to prove their friendship, and and people are all on edge. It's it's, it's scary. Let me tell you. I mean, as far as hoarding toilet paper, I, I walked into the pharmacy one day when this was first started, and there were people walking out with like ten big uh, reams of it. And not even one, like a big case of it. They would walk out with ten cases of it until they finally put a sign, only two to a person. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I, I have walked in when there was no toilet paper, and I said to the manager, you know you love me, what are you going to do? So she came out and gave me a case from inside. I was lucky <laughs> because the only thing that saved me was Amazon, and if you ordered it from Amazon, it came three months later. So you had to pray for that. It's scary. Well, we turned out to be lucky. My wife and I are empty nesters, so and we do that kind of shopping at Costco. So even before yeah. all of this hit, you know, you don't buy a roll of toilet paper at Costco. You buy these big packages. So we were good to go. We didn't have to worry too much about about that. No, Here we are on a radio toilet- show talking about toilet paper. Whoever thought yeah. that this would become a major I con- know. topic of conversation? Only, only now, only this time, right? It's, it's so scary. I mean, really. When they arrive in Ortho, what happens, and and why do they listen to her? Maggie is there, and she meets her, and what is it that they automatically decide to take to Victoria and listen to her? Well, <clears throat> there's a um, when she arrives, uh, she and her and her family or team. Um, when they arrive in Ortho, there's essentially a lynching that is underway because uh, the townspeople have found a couple of ne'er-do-well twins um, who uh, they think have stolen. They've been looting. And, mm-hmm. you know, in times like this, looting looting is bad. And Victoria just isn't going to let that happen, right? I mean, you, you don't, that's just not the right thing to do. So she ends up breaking up the fight, and the reason people listen to her, I mean, this is the construct within the story, and I think this is true, when when you're the outsider and you bring reason, people listen to you. It's reason, it's, that's the reason why consultants mm-hmm. have jobs, right? You mm-hmm. come in, you go into a company that's been run by family or whatever for, for generations, and you bring an outsider in to say, okay, let's look at this a different way. And Victoria is, is able is able to bring reason to uh, to chaos, and she, and frankly, brings a little shame on on the people who were who were doing this. You know, they, they were they realized that they were running out of control, and that uh, and Victoria brought brought stability to chaos, at least for that moment. 
I know. That's what I liked about her. Why does Maggie, I like Maggie, agree? And why does she try and explain to these people what's happening? And who is Benjamin? I was worried about him. Okay, I'm going to need help with Benjamin. Um, it's been a year since I wrote the book, so and I've written another one since two since then. So um, I, I'm not sure who Benjamin is. Maggie is just that. Uh, I, I really love the country. I like West Virginia. In fact, we're going to be moving to West mm-hmm. Virginia soon. Um, there's a, a a welcoming sort of ethos to to everything there and that's maggie she used to run a she ran a tavern and she was sort of the the town location for gossip and reason and what have you and and she took a liking she saw what was going on and uh and just sort of took a, a liking to uh to victoria but you need to refresh my memory on benjamin I'm trying to refresh my own wasn't he didn't he have something to do with with the store that was on there something with the food and and didn't he have like a farm or something? Didn't they try to get him to to bring food over there? Oh yeah 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 yeah. Okay right. He was, Not bad. He was the guy. No, but I read the he, book a while ago too, and I'm going like, yeah, I know this guy has something to do with the food. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, ben was the um, he ran the ortho grocery, and yeah. when the looters came through, and the looters were the the Grubbs gang that the family met up on on the road be, before they got to the town. Um, they took a lot of his stuff, and he took umbrage to that, yeah. so he's standing guard over his stuff. And, and Victoria realizes that this everything, there's no electricity, so everything's going to spoil. They, do, they don't do something. And she presses Benjamin into donating his food, and, and he said, well, this is mine, you can't take it. And she said, okay, well, I'll offer you my credit card. And the absurdity of that, of course, is, you know, so what? You know, I'll charge a million dollars. You know, I'll, I'll put a million dollars on my yeah. credit card at a time that there are no electronics. So that's, that's the kind of sensibility that, that Victoria brings. It, it's, it's, time to, it's time to think about mm-hmm. the world in a different way. I wish people would think about the sensibilities now with all these hate crimes and all this anger, and it's getting nowhere. That's what bothers me. Is that you know they're they're just so bent on every, on picking on everybody that it really bothers me a lot. We have a lot of um, Haitian and Korean people that live in my neighborhood in my building, and they are the nicest people in the world. I mean, it bothers me. I don't like racism and prejudice. It, it, I, I'm totally against it. Now, we have the culprits, the Foster Boys, right? And right. She she learns that they did not rob the pawn shop. And she has to figure out how to defend them, and yet they were looting. So how does she get around them not killing them? I'm not going to say who did it, because we can't give that away. But now, she seems to be law and order, and there's a doctor there, that there's a lawyer at the trial that they convene. And how do they decide what they're going to do? Because she's not a lawyer, but she seems to be able to, the lawyer seems to be able to express himself as the judge and jury there. That was interesting. I wanted you to be on that judge and jury. <laughs> well, Victoria, in, in terms of the Foster Boys, she sort yeah. of just talked yeah. that down. Um, you know, that you can't, you can't kill somebody right now. You, know, it, it's, you, you might be angry at what they did, and that's what they're threatening to do. They're going to lynch these two boys. They're yeah. teenagers. They're twins. And, and they're ne'er-do-wells. I mean, they're the troublemakers in, in town. And... Um, 
and she just kind of she talks them down. Um, later in the book, um, there's a uh, uh, the the Mayboy, uh, Brendan Lee, uh, Brendan Lee May is uh, is put on trial for yeah. uh, a, a number of crimes, and what becomes apparent in in the trial without got to walk this carefully so I don't because I don't want to give things away, but the Mm-hmm. Um, there's a difference between being innocent and being not guilty, and and in a in tame society, what we live in now, we have jails to put people in because we have jails. We can we can build them and, and take them out of society. But you know, in early society, back in colonial days, and essentially that's what America has been blown back to in this in this war. Um, we had stocks and pillories and corporal punishment and ritual scarring mm-hmm. and all of those those forms of punishment, and they worked for a reason. Um, they were barbaric, and the barbarism of that kind of judicial system is is where civilized jails, if that's even a thing, um, came from. But uh, Victoria doesn't have the the luxury of that, so you kind of have to take a, a step back in time and. Um, and take care of things the old way, uh, short of short of capital punishment. Although there could easily be some of that too, I suppose. But um, you know, it's one of one of the constructs of the of the book. One of the important parts of the book is actually something that is true to to me, um, my philosophy on things. And it's about concentric circles. Mm-hmm. And in concentric circles. There are um, family is first. So in my concentric circle, there's there's myself, my wife, and my son. And very close to that inner circle are my other family. And then you have the another circle is the close friends, and on and on and on. Right now we have the luxury of a huge circle. Right, I know tons and tons of people, a lot of other authors and such, and they're lovely people. I love to meet them at the conferences. We have a good time. I would never do anything to harm them, you know, nor would they do anything to harm me. But if if things get really tough, everything collapses to that to that inner mm-hmm. circle, and and for Victoria and her family, um, that's that's their circle. And that means to protect the inner circle, everything else is um, uh, expendable to one level or another, and uh, so that, that's that's a theme that repeats. I think throughout the book, as uh, as she's dealing with family issues as well as the societal yeah. issues that she's been she's been burdened with, <clears throat> not by choice. It's just people keep coming to her. Well, that's my mother's philosophy. Always, she always said, if a family member needs you, they come before everybody else. She said, family first. And there were times I would look at her and I go like, you know. If I said that to them, I needed them to do something, I didn't get it reciprocated, and I never forgot that. And if I wrote term papers for everybody, and my mother would say, you know, so-and-so needs help with their term paper. You need to help them. I go, what about the 17 that I have to write? It was always family first. It's like, yeah, you'll go argue with Ruthie. I know how that feels. So while we're talking about them, they're those Speaker of the House Oh, my God, facing, and he finds himself in a difficult position because the communications are gone. So he finally connects with somebody, a lieutenant and his men, and he's trapped in the bunker, and 
Then he's informed about what happened to the president and vice president. So what happens next? Is the Speaker of the House next? That's scary. Well, that is, that's, that's the order of succession, yeah, the yeah. president, the vice president, and the speaker. And, <clears throat> and after that, the it's job. the president pro tem of the Senate, and then finally, then I believe the next one is secretary of the Treasury. Um, yeah, he, didn't want, he didn't want the job, this guy, did he? He didn't want to do it. <laughs> that's why I got the impression. Well, I mean, that's certainly not what he, what he signed yeah, on he for. Um, no. I, in, within the book, we know Pennington Glendale, uh, Penn Glendale is his name, mm. um, and he, we know that in the past he ran for the presidency and it, and it didn't work out for him. So he's he's happy being the the uh, Speaker of the House. And the minority leader is um, uh, Angela Fortnight, and she is uh, she's ambitious. I mean, all people at that, all politicians at that level are are ambitious within within the House. And um, you know what happens again within the construct of the book. Uh, Penn Glendale was elected speaker uh, because his party was the majority party that was elected to the House. Well, his party, not everybody makes it to the bunker in time, and his party is now the minority party that's actually within the annex or within the bunker. And there's an effort then to, uh, when the presidency, when the president and vice president are both killed in the attacks, he is... um, as speaker, he would become the next president, but the other party, I never named parties, because that's, that's, just don't do that, um, but Angela Fortnight calls for a new election of of speaker, which would then put her as speaker, which would then rise her to the presidency. Uh, so in, in the meanwhile, you know, communications are... You, one of the one of the things that's, that's bizarre about planning these things, um, the annex and the, and the and as I understand it, I don't have huge inside knowledge on these things, but these these bunkers have all of the best communication equipment. But who's going to hear that's them? That's what I Yeah. I mean, you can broadcast all you want, but if nobody's got a radio on the other end, so what? So in essence, and you know, currency has no value. The house is empowered to. Um, uh, legislate funds to build new factories or whatever it is we need to do in wartime, but there are no factories and money has no meaning. And so it, it's, it doesn't take a lot in in my within the view of uh, within the construct of the book. It doesn't take a lot to just mm-hmm. knock us back 300 years and everybody's on their own. Now, what ha- what would ha- happen if Solara, the leader Johnson, who's horrible? If he needed to communicate, would he have the ability, would he have the technology to communicate? Or is it just that there's no communication whatsoever? Well, he has nobody to communicate with. You know, he's he's Lord Lord of the Manor right there. That's his Yeah. You know, there is they're locked up for, for sixty days. And on the sixty first day, um Johnson doesn't have a job. He doesn't have you know, once Unless he does, there is a sequel. So, um, yeah, I know. I know, and that's good because maybe he'll get killed off or something good like that. Or somebody will teach him a lesson and kick his butt. That would make me very happy. So, now we come to something that really scared me with Adam and Emma. And she places mm-hmm. them in danger. And how do they deal with the other people that they face? And how come... 
he gets out of where he was supposed to be in Hilltop or wherever, how come he decided to go out on his own with her? Not too smart, people. Well, Adam and Emma are, remember, this this, this war comes out of nowhere. Um, the average American is either incinerated mm-hmm. in, in their beds or they watch the light show. Nobody really knows what what caused this. So he and, and his girlfriend, Emma, are taking a very romantic camping trip up onto yeah. uh, the mountain with a great view. And that's where they are when, when, the, uh, when the explosions come. And yeah. uh, now they're, so now what do we do? And, of course, nuclear weapons cause big fires, and they're put in a position where they have to escape and then survive. Remember, Adam was, was part of this family. They were raised as preppers, so he has some skills. He has some knowledge. He doesn't have any weapons mm-hmm. to speak of, but he, you can forage and you can, you can get it. And, of course, for him to, to arm himself and protect himself, he has to steal from somebody else, right? So, uh, because you can't buy. There's nothing to buy anything with, and there are a few places to buy from. So he goes, he goes sideways with uh, some of the locals. And Emma drives a 1968 Ford Bronco, which has no electronics, which means it, it can still function. As long as it's got gasoline, um, mm. that her vehicle can still function. Uh, one of the few, again, within the construct of the book, one of the few vehicles that does. And that draws a lot of attention, and people want to have that vehicle, and you know, mm-hmm. they, can't allow, they can't allow that to happen. So uh, Adam and Emma are, are looking to survive on their own. And Victoria, in her original mission, when she was on, on their long walk that led them to Ortho, she was hoping to go to uh, there's a place called Top Hat Mountain. It's a fictional place mm-hmm. in, uh, in West Virginia, which had always been their rallying point. You know, if something went wrong, that would be the rallying point. And I will tell you, we have that within our family. There is a rallying point after 9-11 um, and mm. – and, Everything locked down so tight, and traffic didn't move, nothing moved, and it didn't affect us. We live in, nor- in northern Virginia. Um, I mean, it, it affected us like it affected everybody else, but um, we didn't lose anybody. But I realized at that point that, you know, our son was about to go to college, and we were going to be separated, and if, so if something really bad happened, you can walk anywhere, right? It take, can take a while, but you can mm-hmm. walk anywhere. Yeah. And we had set up a, we still have it, in fact, a, a specific location that we will meet on the first Monday of the month at noon and uh, wait for a couple hours. If they don't show up, then you come back the next first Monday for as long as you're willing to do that or until you write each other off. So um, so that's where Victoria is on her way to meet Adam, her oldest son, who is at a, a boarding school. Adam, <laughs> Adam is what you might call a... Uh, uh, a problem child. So he's just turned 18 on the night of the, of the war, but he's at a boarding school, the military school. And um, so he's he's way far away, and they're trying to get, get back together again. Yeah, 9-11 reminds me of, it was really horrible. I watched it happen on the TV in the nurse's office because I didn't know it was real. They said something about the first tower and the second tower. I actually watched them blow it up. I'm going like they can't be real. It was like so frightening. Then the cell phones went down, and then the, the communications went down, and then the microphone in the school went down, and they had to tell everybody what they wanted them to do. It was really scary. And then yeah. about um, three weeks later, a parent came in to bring her grandson to school or something to tell me that one of my stu- one of my students that I had for two years died in um, 
I, I couldn't even focus after that. And every year on 9-11, I write a special memorial to her because no one else does. It's sad. So It's very sad. That was a very, very sad when, day. Hard to believe it was it is. 20 years this September. I can't. I know. It's scary. And this is like God knows what they're going to do to celebrate this year or remember this year. You can't even remember the right way. When faced with people that might not live, how did Adam... I mean, that was sad. They faced people. They saw there was a car. Somebody got stuck, I remember. How, how do mm-hmm. you decide if you're going to help somebody live or die in this not, in this horror? Well, that's the thing. You know, what, what's the kind thing yeah. to do? Um, there, is, yeah. there is no ambulance. There's no trauma center. Uh, somebody is, is terribly burned or terribly broken up in an auto accident or, you know, whatever, yeah. wounded in battle, whatever the case may be. What do you do? Um, do you, plus you've got really limited resources. So the, if you've got, you've got somebody who's clearly going to pass away and no chance of survival, and as they linger on, do you feed them? Do you, do you give their, you know, if, if they have, and they're also a diabetic. I mean, you throw whatever you want in, in there, and they have uh, diabetes medicine. Um, do you... Do you give it to the guy who's going to die, or do you take them from the guy and give them to people who have a chance of, of living? These are really, in, you know, I think they're interesting and tough questions. And how they yeah, decide they is is what is is what the what a lot of the book is about. You know, making tough decisions and sometimes making the kind decision. You know, it's not all about being harsh and brutal. Um, it's also about having hope and realizing that people do need help, and that if you can give help, you should. Uh, it's it's a survival story, you know. Well, before I forget, on Thursday, the author of The Electric Kingdom, David Richards, will be here. And on Monday, I'm doing something I've never done before. I'm talking about, the book is called Make Your Move by John Brigger, and he's a motivational speaker who's been on The View. And the only reason I'm doing this is because the the man that asked me to take the the, the book is his daughter is the producer of the view, and he said that he wanted to talk about his book on um, it's, it's a book on dating and how people came out and talk about their different dates. It's very interesting and different. On the 16th, somebody we all know and love, Brian Silverman, Freedom Drop. On the 21st, Chris Paulson, The Act Act Girls, and there's a couple more in June, but on the 29th. Tess Garrison and Gary Brava for Choose Me. What a great way to end the month. What can I say? <laughs> it's, it's like I can't believe it sometimes. And in August 5th, everybody, get ready for Iris Johansson. She agreed to a, an interview. And she has an interview with very many people, they said. So let's get back to Victoria. How does she get... This is a tough one. She's got people skills that most people don't have. And she creates a situation where she convinces people that they have to do jobs. What type of jobs does she create? And how does she know that this is going to help them to survive? Because she doesn't. They, nobody knows if she's going to stay there or not. Somebody else may have to take over if she leaves. Well, the way Victoria sees, um, sees the world at, at that time and within Ortho, uh, there's chaos, but there's also people who have known each other for for a long time. And one of the things that happens in any kind of a 
uh, panic situation is that most people think about now, whereas now is gone in the time that it may, takes you to think about it. What you need to think mm -hmm. about is, okay, what's next? And Victoria knows that, that uh, winter is coming, colder weather is coming. She knows that children are going to grow. She knows that they need to have food. Things that are in, the, in freezers now, you know, on day one, they'll be okay for another few days, but not much after that. So that stuff has to be canned or smoked or dried or turned into jerky or something. They need to have fresh water. They need to make sure, you know, if, if you've got a well, you know, that you, you get one flush on a toilet, and then after that, without mm. without electricity to pump the water, then you don't have water. Mm. So, you know, all of these things have to be taken care of and in rapid order. So Victoria assigns committees, and she just cajoles people into to heading up these, these various committees for, for clothing and for uh, construction, because more and more people... The, the, the feral wandering folks are coming in every day, so where are they going to be? You know, there's only so many places you, you can sow stow people before you have to start actually building. So there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a building committee. And then there's defense. You know, you're, you're, you need to defend what is, is your own. And she is able to uh, put everybody, this is expanded more in, in, in uh, Blue Fire, which is the uh, the sequel to Crimson Phoenix, but She's one of those folks, and we've, we've all known them, who you've got people who are leaders because they've got the rank or the business card or the stripe or the star or whatever it is. And then there are people who are leaders because they're leaders. They're just people follow them. And Victoria yeah. is one of those. She's always reasonable. She's kind. She's harsh. Um, and and one of the, some of the people she's hardest on in these circumstances are her own kids. You know, they don't they don't get a break. They have to pull their own weight too uh, within the community, which kind of ticks them off, but, you know, they're kids. So yeah. so that's what Victoria is, is able to organize, and she's able to do it with a wink and a smile and uh, without confrontation, or where there is confrontation, she's able to defuse that confrontation, um, and she does it naturally. And um, so that's that's Victoria. Well, you got me scared at the end. Luke is okay, but why did they take Caleb? And that was scared. That that got me upset. I go, oh my God, you can't get that kid. You can't hurt him. Why would they do something like that after the trial? Why did they take Caleb? What was the point that they were trying to make? Um, revenge. I mean, because of of the what happened with. Uh, again, I don't want to give too much away here, but no. they were. Um, the Grubbs gang is is angry, and um, and Charles Grubbs, uh, I believe that's his name in in the book, yeah. um, is is also a good leader, and he's got people following him, and he's got a point that has to be made, and ultimately it, it comes down to a battle of wills and a battle of bullets, and um, and who who better to leverage that than by putting the other leader's kid in jeopardy. Oh, I got good news. The air conditioner is on its way. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. My husband just called me just now, and I said, oh, my God. Because I'm, I'm sitting here. I always have my phone in my hand just in case there's, you know, whatever happens, okay. And um, 
Oh, I feel so bad. What can I say? This guy just asked me to review his book, and I had to turn him down because I don't read a PDF. I only read print, and he he's not going to send me a book from Scotland. So I feel bad. But it's not a problem I completely understand. I feel bad, but you know what? The last time I did something like that, I wound up printing the book out, and it cost me $150 to do it with the PDF. And you know what? I'm not doing that again. That That's crazy. So let's get back to business here. I have the book in front of me. So we have how, how does she react at the end? How does she react at the end, and how do we know that this is not over? And what research did you do into this particular novel? Because it's so accurate. And by the way, I always do the research, too, to see. Um, I'm not sure who, what, which he we're talking about. How, do, how does Victoria react at the end? What happens to let us know that, I'm not sure whether she, you know, we're not going to say whether she stays there or not, but how do we know that this whole thing is not over? And what happens with the, the Secretary of State? I mean, the Senate. What happens with that? Well, that continues on the on the political side of things. It's um, mm-hmm. that's frankly that's left pretty wide open. It, it takes the members of the House and Senate, and as it turns out now, the president, um, who has no staff. You know, the president doesn't have a cabinet because they're all in the in a in a different facility because the <laughs> the executive, legislative, and the judicial branches all go to different bunkers and they count on advanced communication between them, and and that's not working. So, frankly, there's not a lot for them to do, and um, it comes down to there's a confrontation between the, the, uh, Scott Johnson at Solara and the political leadership that mm. is, um, you know, the, the political folks, they get three meals a day. That's what they get. They don't get to steal stuff. They don't get to pilfer and, and, and grab an extra carrot. Um, and, and that's what they want to do. And it comes to Scott Johnson to interfere, the Solera people to interfere and say, no, that's you. Mm-hmm. You are, you belong to me. You know, you run the country, but while you're here, you, you live by my rules. And that, that goes on and, and becomes, it advances a lot more in, uh, in the second book. But as far as Victoria, we don't know what, at the end of the book, we don't know what Victoria's going to do. She still needs to yeah. Reunite with her with her son Adam, um, who yeah, she's worried is, about him. And um, and while well, he's trying to survive, and you've got the security issues with the Grubbs gang putting a lot of pressure on the folks of Ortho, and you've and you've got the ongoing survival issues. New people are arriving all the time, and they don't have a place mm-hmm. to go, and they don't have anything to do, which makes them, makes them a burden. <clears throat> so it's up to Victoria to make sure that they have something to do so that they earn their place you know, with, within society. The first thing they have to do is participate in the building of their own cabin. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know how to do it, but you certainly have to drive your own nails. And um, so that's it, it kind of the – I look at, at – stories is having an A story and a B story and a C story. And the A story in um, in Crimson Phoenix is actually the confrontation of the townspeople with the, with the invaders. And the B story and C story, which is what I just talked about, sort of the socioeconomic issues and the personal issues with Victoria and her family are, you know, they kind of come to a gentle close at the end, but trust me, they come wide open again in, 
in uh, Blue Fire next February. Okay. Well, that leads me to the next question that I just wrote that wasn't on my list that I asked um, the other day when I was interviewing um, Dick Belsky. Uh, her Ocean Grave? Oh, my God, was that good. That was really good. Or the Claire Carlson series or anybody. Oh, Vincent Zandri. How do you create more than one plot in a novel? I interviewed Don Bentley yesterday for Target Acquired. And I, I, the, how do you create a plot, like a plot, you know, three plots, A, B, and C, so that the reader follows it and doesn't say, what am I reading? I can't follow all of those. I was able to follow this with no problem. But how do, you, how do you create, you know, three separate plots in a story and bring it all together at the end? That's hard. It is hard, and I'll be really honest with you. <clears throat> I don't know how, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, there's much about uh, – we go to writers' conferences and such, and, and people ask these questions like, where do your ideas come from, and, and ask about process. And the really honest answer for me always is I really don't know, and I find it terrifying. Uh, every new book uh, – I, I start with a blank page. I kind of know where I'm going to go, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And I mm-hmm. trust that it just happens somehow. And it has 24 times now, so hopefully it doesn't break down on 25 <laughs> as, I, as I start the next book. Um, but you know, I can't the, believe that I haven't read your work before. I mean, what I did that day on Facebook, I do that. I get in trouble a lot. And when I saw that you wrote this and I wrote, okay, how do I get it? I don't do that with everybody. And my husband looked at me and says, you didn't just do that again. I go, yeah, of course I did. Whatever. <laughs> I, I was just like, how did I not read John Gilstrap? I think I met you once or twice at the Thriller Fest. I'm the little blonde person with crazy color hair. That's me. <laughs> That's there. John Land made sure that I that I come all the time. And um, it was it was like the greatest thing in the world to, to meet everybody. I was in awe the whole time. What can I tell you? The only person that sort of frightened me was uh, R.L. Stein. He was like, okay, whatever. So the other thing is that I didn't read any of your other work. Do you ever do crime scenes with death scenes? I just re- re- reviewed a book called I Have Seen Dead People by Donna Francourt, and then she's a, she's a uh, deputy coroner. She was. And I've never done a panel show where for crime, how does the, how does the author create the death scene and how do you know that it's accurate? So do you ever create uh, death scenes in your book? In your other oh, books? Yeah. Because I don't know. You do, yes, yeah. I do. Um, I was a firefighter and EMT for 15 years. Um, oh, nice. So, so I, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of it up close and personal. So um, getting, getting the accuracy isn't, uh, isn't too much of a problem. But I also, you know, it's, what's interesting about what I do for a living when you're, when you're mm-hmm. an author Every cop in the world will talk to you, you know, it's um, as long as they know they're not on the record. And you can do ride-alongs, you can do all kinds of stuff. And, um, well, that's great. And um, I write a lot about a lot of Special Forces stuff, too. That's the, the, my Jonathan Graves series. Is, he's a former um, Delta operator who does freelance hostage rescues. Uh, so that, you know, if, if your loved one is taken, you call Jonathan and... Um, he gets them back for you, and there's not a lot of evidence collected because he doesn't care about that. And uh, and he ends up doing stuff for Uncle Sam that Uncle Sam can't actually do. So when is he coming out with another book? Because I never read him, and that's not fair. Jonathan Gray. I mean, the... I, w- I, w- I won't even tell you how many books I've read in the last ten years. It's like mind-boggling. My husband's counting over twelve thousand. I go like, how oh my do I do that? 
Well, my mother made me read 10 books a week. I'm serious. Hebrew lessons, piano lessons, violin lessons, homework, piece of cake, dancing lessons. I felt like I was being punished. I hated it. It was like the worst nightmare every Saturday morning. And I was saying, I'm a, I'm a straight-A student. Why did I do wrong this? You need overweight. You need to lose. I hated dancing lessons. So where do you, where, when, are, when are you coming out? With, and she made me read 10 books a week and take notes. This is probably why I couldn't. When I, after I read your book, I had it memorized. I didn't even have to look back to write the review. I literally had it memorized. It's like she sent me for speed reading, too. So what, what so is, well, what is Stealth, Stealth Attack Gray? comes out on June 29th. Oh, so how come I didn't get a review copy? That's not good. I, I don't could add know. it to my skit. Is it the same publicist, or are they not sending any more review copies out? It should be the same publicist. And actually, you have my email address. I'll send you a copy. Some of your email, or some of your. Uh, Send, send address. Me, be comfortable a, doing that, or you can do it through the publicist. It is the same publicist. Send me, send me a print copy, and I will email you. Yeah. I'll do a private message. I think I have your email address. I'm not sure. I have it on my phone somewhere. Everywhere. It's john at johngillstrap.com. Okay, wait a minute. Let me write it. John at johngillstrap.com. I'm going to email you my address so I can get one this way. Okay. I could stick you in another whatever. I'm, I'm going crazy because... I have, I've always had like I've always done like one show every week, no two, and I feel so bad for people that ne- next week I have three, the week after I have three. I mean that just is insane. I'm, I don't do anything in July because it's when I do stuff for memory of my sister, and then this starts the first week of August. I have three. There's one week I actually have four. I was like, what is wrong with you, girl? How could you do this? I do it anyway. I don't care. It's, this is like probably the best thing to keep my mind active or anybody else active, to just not think about anything and helping authors. This is fun, actually. I love it. So. Well, it's great that you do yeah. it. You know, it's finding uh, competent review outlets is getting harder and harder and harder. Um, yeah, I know. And because I actually read the book. <laughs> that, and let me tell book. you, that is so helpful. I love the radio interview where they clearly have not read the book. <laughs> they asked the generic question. I, I, I know, silent. and I watch sometimes the Today Show, and they're interviewing you know, famous authors, and I go, like, you didn't read the book. How do, you know, how do they not ask the questions? I mean, th- there are times that I get asked, like, you really read the book. I don't want to answer those questions. And I got really annoyed, and I said, okay, I'll rework them. But I'm not going to ask questions like, why did you write the book, and how come you became a writer? Everybody asks those questions. I'm not going to do that. That's not me. So one last question. Where can everybody get all of your books? Well, would you say 20 of them, 29 of them? 24. 24 Actually, it might be 23. I just submitted the 24th, so it's not out yet. Um, oh, good. You can go to my website, johngillstrap.com. You can go to Amazon, any, wherever books are sold. So if you want the ebook, we got that. We got audio. We got uh, hardcover, softcover. It's a... It's a, a smorgasbord of Gilstrap books, however you want to get them. Well, they're going to get there. And um, thank you so much. I'm going to put the link out for the show. I'll send it to you. I'll put it thank out you. on Facebook so everybody can tell me that they're jealous that they didn't read the book. So sad. <laughs> well, they always I have mean, an opportunity I, to fix that. Uh, trust me. Uh, I have a lot of people that said to me, can I have the book next? I said, that's why they invented Amazon. <laughs> um, it's, it's it's amazing because the people in my building before this pandemic, and they still do it now once in a while, stop me in the hall, what do you have for me to read? 
and they go like the if you're lucky I'll hand you something. Oh, I leave the I leave them outside my door and they they disappear in five minutes, which is really cool. Cause, and the porters in my building, uh, they have no libraries in their foreign country. They don't have any bookstores that are working. So every month I give them a pile of books to send to Ghana and Nigeria or wherever else they they, they come from. So that makes me feel good. At least people are reading, which is great. Mm-hmm. But, but I want to thank it's you wonderful. so much. This has been fun, let me tell you. It's been a lot and, of fun. Thank you so much. I hope your air conditioning you. gets fixed. I think my husband just gave me back my phone to tell me that I think either they came or they're on the way. I hope to God because I can't breathe in there. But thank you so much, everybody. Have a great day. Stay safe and bye. Bye bye. Thank you. <laughs>